It's finally here, ladies and gentlemen. It's finally here. Story Traditions with James, Spring 2010 Edition. Stay tuned. Story Story Traditions with James, Spring 2010 Edition. Story Traditions with James, Spring 2010 Edition. Story Traditions with James, Spring 2010 Edition. Join me as we explore the Russian chronicles, myths, fairy tales, legends, works done by Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Chekhov, among others. Don't go anywhere. James is on you. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, what we've all been waiting for. Story Traditions with James kicks off the 2010 spring semester. This semester we're focusing on Russian literature. Um, Why I chose Russian literature? Well, I've explained this last semester. I've always been interested in Russian literature, simply put. Um, What are we going to focus on throughout the semester? Well, we're going to discuss... Russian literature in, um, while looking at its history. Okay? Many people may think that Russian literature begins uh, in the late or middle of the 19th century, but that, may not, that is not the case. Russian literature goes all the way back to when they first got their alphabet. Okay? And we will look at some of the original writings. What were things... What were the... Uh, the topics, the key issues being discussed in Russian literature around the 10th century, uh, 800s, 900s, and so on. We will look at that today. We will also focus on the role religion plays in early Russian civilization. The, the emphasis on, on Byzanti- Byzantium l- literature and so on. And lastly, today, we will look at the political structure of early Russian civilization? What type of laws were set in place? How did the people govern this new civilization? So keep it locked. Don't go anywhere, ladies and gentlemen. James is on the air. If you'd like to join in the discussion, simply call 777-2137 in the 607 area code. Again, 777-2137 in the 607 area code. We will kick, kick off with some music from the Russian cathedral. 
Okay, and then right after this, we're going to go right in to early Russian civilization, also known as Kievan Rus. Don't go anywhere.
from a compilation of liturgical music from the Russian cathedral. And now we return to our discussion on Russia, early Russia. I want to provide you with an introduction into Russia. Uh, Modern Russia is an industrial and military superpower which has dominated the global scene in the middle and later decades of the 20th century in competition with the United States of America. Officially known since 1922 as the USSR, Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, the country covers a sixth of the Earth's land surface, being more than twice as large as any other state. The population was approaching 300 million by the early 1990s, but is not dense by comparison with that of other leading states, including China and India, being especially sparse in Asiatic Russia. Russia in Asia includes the vastness of Siberia and accounts for about three-quarters of the total area of the USSR. But the country's main historical developments have been based on its European territory, itself large enough to dwarf all other European states. Three capital cities have played an especially potent role from the 9th to the 11th centuries AD and beyond. Kiev headed a loose federation of principalities. Then after a long interval when Russia had no single unchallenged first city, Moscow became the capital which it remained from the 15th century until 1712. The next capital was St. Petersburg, later briefly renamed Petrograd, now Leningrad. In 1918, the seat of government was transferred back to Moscow. Russia's climate varies from Arctic severity in the north to subtropical heat in the south, being generally of the extreme continental variety with especially severe winters. There are four main vegetational belts, tundra in the far north, then forest, then steppe, and finally the deserts of the extreme south. Among these zones, only the intermediate forest and steppe have been of central importance in Russian history. The Russian landmass consists of a huge plain ringed only in parts of its southern perimeter, as also in eastern Siberia by high mountains. Complex river systems form communication links vital to internal transport, but ill-equipped for international trade since they mainly pour into landlocked or ice-bound waters. That's a brief introduction. And in in that introduction, I highlight three main areas that become uh, the capitals of Russia, specifically Kiev, Moscow, and St. Petersburg. Let's first look at Kiev. Kiev was the central state or principality of what has become Russia today. Kiev is now located in the Ukraine, but it was once the center of pre-imperial Russia. And Kiev was occupied primarily by Eastern Slavs. And these Eastern Slavs, okay, when we're talking about Slavic peoples, we're really talking about an ethnic group. There, there is no na- nation or state of Slavs. They were primarily nomads moving towards Russia. They were migrating from the east 
and settling in Kiev. That was one group of people. You had another group coming in from Turkey, migrating south. Okay, they were migrating north, but occupying the south as they migrated towards the north. And these people are known as the Khazars. Okay, they're, they're, um, they occupied that strip. Okay, if you look at the map, you'll notice that there's a strip south of Russia, directly between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. That became the, Car- the Khazarian Empire, uh, dominated by Islamic groups in the early in pre-imperial Russia. Um, I want to focus now on the Slavic people who uh, migrated into Kiev. Who were these people? What were they doing? Well, they were essentially Eastern Slavic people. Okay, and and that's all we really know about about um, the early settlers of Kiev. That they were early Eastern Slavs. Okay, they didn't have a central language. They were able to communicate, but there was no central language. And while they were migrating and settling in early Kiev, the Vikings, who are are referred to as the Varangians, were also um, doing their racketeering, if you will, in into uh, Kiev. And at this point, Rurik, a Viking from Sweden, comes into Kiev and settles there with his family. And this is something that has plagued the Russian um, identity. Okay, When the Slavs were living in Kiev... There was no real ruler. There was no central government. And this is something that has plagued, again, the Russian identity. It's often said that Russians or Slavic people need an outsider to come in and rule and, and, and uh, run the government. Only that way they, there will be peace. And this was the scenario in early 10th century Russia. Rurik, the Viking came in from from Sweden and was elected ruler of Kiev, making um, him the first ruler and, I guess, and the first outsider to rule Kiev and form a government. And here comes the word Rus, R-U-S, okay? It morphs into Russia, but where did the word Rus comes, come from? And this baffles scholars today. Scholars really don't know where the word Rus comes from. But the word Rus means Sweden. So some people are suggesting that Rus is tied on to Kiev to symbolize this, this new form of society, this mixture of Swede, Swedish people and Slavic people. So the new name of this civilization became Kievan Rus. Okay, Kievan Rus, Kievan meaning the Slavic people inhabiting Russia and Rus meaning the Swedish people now inhabiting Russia. So that is where um, at, at, at around nine, 988, we have this scenario. Russia or Kiev is now being inhabited by both Slavic people and uh, Swedish people. 
What's the next step in this civilization? There needs to be a common language or a, a written language with which everyone can communicate. And who took, up, who, took the, who took up the task of assigning and putting together this new language? Well, at this point in history, Byzantium was expanding. Okay, Constantinople, the, the center of Christianity at this point in history, was expanding into Russia. And so several Greeks, namely um, Cyril and Methodius, brought to the, um, uh, the Slavic people the Mass and Gospel. And they also took up the task of putting together an alphabet for the Slavs. And when we return, we're going to look at what this means, uh, the alphabet. How was the alphabet used in molding the Kievan civilization? Okay? So keep it locked. We have much more in store. Don't go anywhere. Story Traditions with James continues.
And we're back here on 90.5 WHRW Binghamton, Story Traditions with James. And we, we're looking at Kiev. What's going on in Kiev around 988? We've established who is occupying Kiev at this point. We have the Swedes coming in as, as, um, as both Vikings and now ruling, ruling the state. And we have the Slavonic people inhabiting Kiev, Kiev and Rus. And I've pointed out that Cyrillic and Methodius were responsible for putting together the alphabet for the new Russian civilization. What was the goal of putting together this alphabet? Well, the alphabet was put together for means of communication, writing down the scripture. Okay, at this point in history, Constantinople is expanding. And one way to get uh, a group of people into your religion is by using not your own language, but also using their own language and merging them in through their language to believe in your religion. And that was the goal of these two men. They were brothers, Cyrillic and Methodius. Uh, that was the goal. They then they first put together the alphabet and then they translated the 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 holy scriptures in such a way that it seemed as if though these uh the russians the slavonic peoples were already god's people and why do i say that well i would read to you right now something that was published around that time period for the russians to read uh this is coming directly out of the chronicles and what do you think of when you think of chronicles newspapers, writings of some sort, um, chronicling or detailing key events during a particular period in history. And that's what the Chronicles are doing for us right now. Okay? This, these, what I will read for you today are some of the early writings that were exposed to the people of Kiev during their day. And the first thing I, read, I will read to you comes from the pro Lego Menon. Pro Lego, excuse me. Pro Lego Menon. Okay? And this is the beginning of the Chronicles. And the Chronicles, really, they're long stories of, about the history of Russia. But they're told in such a way that the people are sort of forced into uh, believing that they were once sent uh, by God. Okay, and this ties into this dual faith that Russians often have. Some Russians, they still practice pagan rituals, while others are attempting to uh, become Christianized. And it, it still exists today, this dual faith mentality. And that's partly because they were forced to internalize a language or a belief system through um, someone else, and in this case, the Greeks. So I will read to you right now something from the Chronicles, okay? And again, the Chronicles are detailing key events that took place during uh, various time periods. And here it is. Let us begin this tale in this way. After the flood... The sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth 
divided the earth among them. To the lot of Shem fell the Orient, and his share extended lengthwise as far as India and breadthwise from east to south as far as Reno Korura, including Persia and Bactria, as well as Syria Media, which lies besides the Euphrates River, Babylon, Cordnia, Assyria, Mesopotamia, Arabia the Ancient, Elimias, India, Arabia the Mighty, and all of Phoenicia. To the lot of Ham fell the southern region, comprising Egypt, Ethiopia, facing toward India, the other Ethiopia, out of which the Red Ethiopian River flows to the eastward, the Thebaid, Libya, as far as Cyrene, Marmaris, Citrus, Numidia, Messiris, over and against Cadiz. Among the regions of the Orient, Ham also received Sicilia, Pamphylia, Mysia, Laconia, Phrygia, Camellia, Lycia, Caria, Lydia, the rest of Mosia, Troas, and so on. He likewise acquired the islands of Sardinia, Crete, and Cyprus, and the river Gihon, called the Nile. To the lot of Japheth fell the northern and the western sections, including Media, Albania, Armenia, Cappadocia, Paphlagia, Galatia, Colchis, Bospor, Maeotis, Dervis, Sarmatia, Toria, Scythia, Thrace, Macedonia, Dalmatia, Malaysia, Thessaly, Lorsus, Pelene, Arcadia, among others. He received also the islands of Britain, Sicily, Rhodes, Chios, Lesbos, Cytheria, among others, Ithaca, as well as a portion of the land of Asia called Ionia, the river Tigris flowing between the Medes and Babylon, and the territory to the north extending as far as the Pontus and including the Danube, the Dniester, and the Caucasian mountains, which are called Hungarian, and thence even to the Dnieper. He likewise acquired dominion over other rivers, among them the Desna, the Pripet, the Dvina, the Volga, among others, which flows eastward into the portion of Shem. In the share of Japheth lie Russia, Chud, and all the Gentiles, Maria, Muroma, Ves, Mardova, Chud, beyond, beyond the hills, Perm, among others. The Varangians dwell on the shores of that same sea and extend to the eastward as far as the portion of Shem. They likewise live to the west beside the sea as far as the land of the angels and the Italians. For the following nations also are a part of the race of Japheth, the Varangians, the Swedes, the Normans, the Rus, 
the Angles, the Gauls, the Italians, the Romans, the Germans, the Carolingians, the Venetians, the Genoses, Genoese, and so on. Their homes are situated in the northwest and adjoin the Hamitic tribes. Thus Shem, Ham, and Japheth divided the earth among them. And after casting lots so that none might encroach upon his brother's share, they lived each in his appointed portion. There was but one language, and as men multiplied throughout the earth, they planned in the days of Yoktan and Peleg to build a tower as high as heaven itself. Thus they gathered together in the plain of Shinar to build the tower and the city of Babylon round about it. But they wrought upon the tower for forty years, and it was unfinished. Then the Lord God descended to look upon the city and the tower and said, This race is one, and their tongue is one. So the Lord confused the tongues, and after dividing the people into twenty-two races, he scattered them over the world. After the confusion of the tongues, God overthrew the tower with a great wind, and the ruin of it lies between Assur and Babylon. In height and in breadth, it is 5,433 cubits, and the ruin was preserved for many years. After the destruction of the tower and the division of the nations, the sons of Shem occupied the eastern regions, the sons of Ham those of the south, and the sons of Japheth, the western and the northern lands. Among these twenty-two nations, the Slavic race is de derived from the line of Japheth, since they are the Norisians, who are identical with the Slavs. For many years the Slavs lived beside the Danube, where the Hungarian and Bulgarian lands now lie. From among these Slavs, parties scattered throughout the country and were known by appropriate names according to the places where they settled. Thus some came and settled by the river Marova and were named, and were named Moravians, while others were, were called Czechs. Among, the, some, among these same Slavs are included the White Croats, the Serbs, for when the Vlachs attacked the Danubian Slavs, settled among them, and did them violence, the latter came and made their homes by the Vistula, and were then called Liaks. Of these names, and of the same Liaks, some were called Poles, some Luticians, and some Mozavians, and still others Pomorians. Certain Slavs settled also on the Dnieper and were, and were there called Polanians, since others were named Derivilians because they lived in the forests. Some also lived between the Pripet and the Divinia and were known as Dragovicians. Other tribes resided among the Divina and were called Polotians on account of a small stream called the Polota, which flows into the Divinia. 
It was from this same stream that they were named Polotians. The Slavs also dwelt about Lake Ilmen and were known there by their own original name. They built a city which they called Novgorod. Still others had their homes along the Desna, the Sem, and the Sula, and were called Severians. Thus the Slavic race was divided, and its language was known as Slavic. When the Polinians lived by themselves among the hills, a trade route connected the Varingians with the Greeks, Starting from Greece, this route proceeds along the Dnieper, above which a portage leads to the Lovat. By flowing the Lovat, by following the Lovat, the great lake Ilmen is reached. The river Volkhov flows out of this lake and enters the great lake Nevo. The mouth of this lake opens into the Varingian Sea. Over this sea goes the route to Rome and on from Rome overseas to Constantinople. The Pontus, into which flows the river Dnieper, may be reached from that point. The Dnieper itself rises in the upland forest and flows southward. The Dvinia has its source in the same forest but flows northward and empties into the Varingian Sea. The Volga rises in the same forest but flows to the east and discharges through 70 mouths into the Caspian Sea. It is possible by this route to go eastward to reach the Bulgars and thus attain the region of Shem. Along the Dvinia runs the route to the the Varingians, whence one may reach Rome and go on from there to the race of Ham. But the Dnieper flows through various mouths into the Pontus. This sea, beside which taught St. Andrew, Peter's brother, is called the Russian Sea. Now that story, it's, it's lengthy and very detailed. It goes out of its way to provide details in such a way that you have to believe or almost... You're, you're thinking whether or not to believe that this, whether this story is true or not. And that was the goal of, of um, uh, Cyril and Methodius when they were translating and the, the uh, Holy Scriptures and providing the Slavic people with a religion. What they were doing were, were, what they were doing was providing such great details that the Slavic people had to almost believe that this was true, but also look at the detail they provide. Okay, I want to reread um, this line for you. For the following nations also are a part of the race of Japheth, the Pharyngians, the Swedes, the Normans, the Rus. Okay? Notice how by implementing the Rus in this piece, the Russians almost become children of God. And that was the task and that was the role of, of um, providing the, the Slavic people with this alphabet. So that when they do read something, it, it's almost a religious experience. That they are to the children of God and they are um, part of 
of many tribes that come from God. So when we return, we're going to look at some more of the chronicles and how religion is forced or implemented into this new civilization. We will also look at who becomes the prominent leader in Kievan civilization in the 11th and 12th centuries. Keep it locked. Don't go anywhere. Remember, the number here is 777-2137 in the 607 area code. You're always welcome to call in if you have anything to add. If you want to discuss any tales from this time period, you're more than welcome to do so. some Slavic music for you. And to show you how um, the Chronicles work to document their history, I'll read for you something about when Rurik arrived. This tale, or this chronicle, 
attempts to detail what took place upon his arrival. Okay, and the Varingians is another word for Viking. Okay, the Varingians from beyond the sea imposed tribute upon the Chuds, the Slavs, the Mirians, the Ves, and the Krivichians. But the Khazars imposed it upon the Polinians, the Severians, and the Viachians, and collected a squirrel skin and a beaver skin from each hearth. The Slavs, the tributaries of the Varingians, drove them back beyond the sea, and refusing them further tribute, set out to govern themselves. There was no law among them, but tribe rose against tribe. Discord thus ensued among them, and they began to war one against another. They said to themselves, Let us seek a prince who may rule over us and judge us according to the law. They accordingly went overseas to the Varingian Rus. These particular Varingians, known as Rus, just as some are called Swedes, and others Normans, Angles, and Goths, for they were thus named. The Chuds, the Slavs, and the Kravichians then said to the people of Rus, Our whole land is great and rich, but there is no order in it. Come to rule and reign over us. They thus selected three brothers with their kinfolk, who took with them all the Rus and migrated. The oldest, Rurik, located himself in Novgorod. The second, Sinius, in Beluziro, and the third, Truvor, in Izborsk. On account of these Varingians, the district of Novgorod became known as Russian land. The present inhabitants of Novgorod are descended from the Varingian race, but after but aforetime they were Slavs. After two years, Sinius and his brother Truvor died, and Rurik assumed the role, the sole authority. He assigned cities to his followers, Polosk to one, Rostov to another, and to another, Beluziro. In these cities, there are thus Varingian colonists, but the first settlers were in Novgorod, Slavs in Polosk, Krivichians at Belusiro, Ves in Rostov, Mirians, and in Murom, Muromians. Rurik had dominion over all these districts. With Rurik, there were two men who did not belong to this kin, but were boyars. They obtained permission to go to Constantinople with their families. They thus sailed down the Dnieper, and in the course of their journey, they saw a small city on a hill. Upon their inquiry as to whose town it was, they were informed that three brothers, Ki, Sheke, and Korif, had once built the city, but that since their deaths, their descendants were living there as tributaries of the Khazars. Askold and Deir remained in this city, and after gathering together many Varingians, they established their domination over the country of the Polinians at the same time that Rurik was ruling at Novgorod.
Askold and Deir attacked the Byzant- Byzantine capital during the 14th, cent- 14th year of the reign of the Emperor Michael. When the emperor had set forth against the Saracens and had arrived at the Black River, the Aparch sent him word that the Russians were approaching Constantinople and the emperor turned back. Upon arriving inside the strait, the Russians made a great massacre of the Christians and attacked Constantinople in 200 boats. The emperor succeeded with difficulty in entering the city. The people prayed all night with the patriarch Photius at the Church of the Holy Virgin in Blachirne. They also sang hymns and carried the sacred vestment of the Virgin to dip it in the sea. The weather was still and the sea was calm, but a storm of wind came up, and when great waves straightway rose, confusing the boats of the godless Russians, it threw them upon the shore and broke them up so that few escaped such destruction. The survivors then returned to their native land. And that is one of the chronicles detailing how Rurik came to be ruler. But remember, when I first uh, opened up the show, I talked about how the Russians, this is something that has played the Russians' identity, um, that the Slavs often would you know, seem to need someone from outside to come and rule them. And that is detailed in this story. I'll reread the passage for you. The Slavs, the tributaries of the Varingians, drove them back beyond the sea and, refusing them further tribute, set out to govern themselves. There was no law among them, but tribe rose against tribe. Discord thus ensued among them, and they began to war one against another. They said to themselves, Let us seek a prince who may rule over us and judge us according to the law. They accordingly went overseas to the Varingian Rus. These particular Varingians were known as Rus, just as some are called Swedes and others Normans, Angles, and Goths, for they were thus named. The Chuds, the Slavs, and the Krivichians then said to the people of Rus, Our whole land is great and rich, but there is no order in it. Come to rule and reign over us. So this indicates that in pre-imperial Russia, the challenge of governing was, was present. The many tribes or the many ethnicities that existed there were unable to govern themselves. So they went out in search of someone who can come and govern. And in this case, Rurik came in and brought his family, and um, they govern much of Kiev. Novgorod, which is an important part, uh, principality in Kiev in Rus. We will look at this um, as the semester unfolds, but this is north of Kiev. This is in the northern, probably the most northern part of the Kievan Rus civilization at this at this point in history and it still exists today and in fact it has um endured several um wars several battles um the mongols the mongolian invasion the novgorod has survived that and it, it it's a very important city in russian history 
All right, so that's one chronicle detailing an event that took place and what, um, how, who, it, it, it specifies who was ruling and how the ruler came to be um, in, in Kiev and Rus. Um, who wrote these chronicles? Who was responsible for detailing this information? Well, the monks... Monks were primarily writing these chronicles because they were well trained in in in, in uh, Christianity. So they their role became um, their role was to become the writers of of these chronicles, and some of these chronicles were used as sermons, and they were read out to the masses to facilitate their um, the Christianization process. Remember, Constantinople is, ex- is expanding, and one of the ways to Christianize the people is by giving them a, a, an alphabet system, having them write, and then once um, the, the, what is written is, is read out loud, it it will work to persuade them into coming into Christianity. And that's the role of the writing. Uh, when we return, we're going to look at some more key events as detailed for us in the Chronicles. So keep it locked. Remember, the number here is 777-2137 in the 607 area code. You're always welcome to give me a call. Oh, 
we're back. And I have a uh, guest here with me, DJ Juliet. Thanks for sitting in on my show today. Now, you, you take... You you disagree with the last story, or you you have some issues you want to address in this story. What what are what are some of these issues? Um, I just felt like it was very clear that who the author was in that story that it was Rurik the and like as in the Victor writes history and that the one sentence that you repeated at the end from the story was the most okay. Let me repeat unbelievable this. sentence in the whole piece let that me... pointed to the author. Are you referring to this one? There were there was no land among them, but tribe rose against tribe. Discord thus ensued among them, and they began to war one against another. They said to themselves, Let us seek a prince who may rule over us and judge us according to the law. Is this what you're referring yes. to? Yes. <laughs> okay. And you believe that this was written by Rurik. Rurik forced uh, that in there. Yeah, I don't believe any people go around thinking they want a prince from the next town over. Okay. Why wouldn't? Why would they? I mean, is there a reason? Well, were, were the other people more civilized or have something to offer that they didn't have in their own land? Right, right. That's an excellent point, and I, I can't answer it right now. And remember, the the writers were monks, and the monks could have been heavily influenced by anything. I remember their education was coming from Constantinople. So, and I'm thinking the monks were paid by the king. Rurik. Possibly. Okay, we can uh, we can investigate some more as the semester unfolds and find out how how these stories were so well controlled. Who controlled them? Who got the last word on what goes into the chronicles? I mean, if I was Rourke, I would probably write something like that. You know, that's right, right. I agree. I agree. You're, it's, it, it's, it, it's an interesting point. You know, why such an emphasis on the Slavs having to go outside and find a leader to govern them? You know, so it's an excellent point. Uh, thanks for the point. Uh, we're going to move on to another chronicle. Okay. Constantinople, again, Byzantium was heavily influencing what was going on in Kiev and Rus, and this did not sit well with any with everyone. One person in particular, Oleg. And I'll read for you Prince Oleg's campaign against Constantinople. Leaving Igor in Kiev, Prince Oleg attacked the Greeks. He took with him a multitude of Varangians, Slavs, Chuds, Kravitians, Marians, Polinians, Severians, Drevlians, Croats, among others. All these tribes are known as Great Scythia by the Greeks. With this entire force, Oleg sallied forth by horse and by ship, and a number of his vessels was 2,000. He arrived before Constantinople, but the Greeks fortified the strait and closed up the city. Oleg disembarked upon the shore and ordered his soldiery to beach the ships. They waged war around the city and accomplished much slaughter of the Greeks. They also destroyed many palaces and burned the churches of the prisoners they captured. Some they beheaded, some they tortured, some they shot, and still others they cast into the sea. The Russians inflicted many other woes upon the Greeks after the usual manner of soldiers. Oleg commanded his warriors to make wheels 
which they attached to the ships, and when the wind was favorable, they spread the sails and bore down upon the city from the open country. When the Greeks beheld this, they were afraid, and sending messengers to Oleg, they implored him not to destroy the city, and offered to submit to such tribute as he should desire. Thus Oleg halted his troops. The Greeks then brought out to him food and wine, but he would not accept it, for it was mixed with poison. Then the Greeks were terrified and exclaimed, This is not Oleg, but Saint Demetrius, whom God has sent upon us. So Oleg demanded that they pay tribute for his 2,000 ships at the rate of 12 grivnias per man, with 40 men reckoned to a ship. The Greeks assented to these terms and prayed for peace lest Oleg should conquer the land of Greece. Retiring thus a short distance from the city, Oleg concluded a peace with the Greek emperors, Leo and Alexander, and sent into the city to them Karl, Farulf, Vermund, Roloff, and Steinwith, with instructions to receive the tribute. The Greeks promised to satisfy their troops, uh, I'm sorry, to satisfy their requirements. Oleg demanded that they should give up to the troops and the 2,000 ships, 12 grivnias per bench, and pay, in addition, the sums required for the various Russian cities. First Kiev, then Chernigov, Paraislav, Polotsk, Rostov, Liobech, and the other towns. In these cities lived princes subject to Oleg. The Russians proposed the following terms. The Russians who come hither shall receive as much grain as they require. Whosoever come as merchants shall receive supplies for six months, including bread, wine, meat, fish, and fruit. Baths shall be prepared for them in any volume they require. When the Russians return homeward, they shall receive from their emperor food, anchors, cordage, and sails, and whatever else is needful for the journey. The Greeks accepted these stipulations, and the emperors and all the courtiers declared, If Russians come hither without merchandise, they shall receive no provisions. Your prince shall personally lay injunction upon such Russians as journey hither, that they shall do no violence in the towns and throughout our territory. Such Russians as arrive here shall dwell in the St. Mama's quarter. Our government will send officers to record their names, and they shall then receive their monthly allowance, first the natives of Kiev, then those from Chernikov, Perenslav, and other cities. They shall not enter the city save through one gate, unarmed, and fifty at a time, escorted by soldiers of the emperor. They may purchase wares according to their requirements and tax-free. Thus the emperors Leo and Alexander made peace with Oleg, and after agreeing upon the tribute and mutually binding themselves by oath, they kissed the cross and invited Oleg and his men to swear an oath likewise. According to the religion of the Russians, the latter swore by their weapons and by their god Perun, as well as by Volos, the god of cattle, and thus confirmed the treaty. Oleg gave orders 
that silken sails should be made for the Russians and linen ones for the Slavs, and his demand was satisfied. The Russians hung their shields upon the gates as a sign of victory, and Oleg then departed from Constantinople. The Russians unfurled their silken sails and the Slavs their sails of linen, but the wind tore them. Then the Slavs said, Let us keep our canvas ones. Linen sails are not made for the Slavs. So Oleg came to Kiev, bearing pauls, gold, fruit, and wine, along with every sort of adornment. The people called Oleg the seer, for they were but pagans, and therefore, therefore, ignorant. That's an interesting story, in my opinion. And it it's listed in the Chronicles immediately after the story I read to you about Rurik. So this, I think, ties into um, DJ Juliet's argument about who's writing these things, who's getting the last word. We're not, in this case, we're not getting why Oleg was displeased with the Greeks. He just waged, does he just wage a war against the Greek? Or were the Greeks very oppressive in this new Kievan civilization? It's hard to tell, but one thing this story, this chronicle tells us is the use of the pagan ritual. Okay, let's let's revisit this notion of the pagan. According to the religion of the Russians, the latter swore by their weapons and by their god. Perun, as well as by Volos, the god of cattle, and thus confirmed the treaty. So clearly, religion was at conflict. Might religion have played into Oleg's decision to go into Constantinople and rage war against the Greeks? Possibly. But one thing is certain. When the Greeks, when Cyril and Methodius put together the Russian alphabet, what they were essentially doing was blocking the Greek language, okay? And this is an important point, because language carries culture. What do I mean by that? When you internalize a language and you're using another language, you're essentially internalizing the carrier of that language worldview. So, I speak English. What comes along with English? What culture nurtures the English language in such a way that I can communicate freely with another person who speaks English and I can identify whether this person is a native speaker or not? Those little intricacies of language are important in transmitting a, 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 an entire culture and bringing people into another culture. So when Cyril and Methodius put together the Russian language or the Russian alphabet, what they essentially did was separate the Greek culture from the Russian culture. And in doing so, they prevented or they had the power to block or prevent the Russians from learning the Greek culture or internalizing the Greek culture. So this separation, this division between the two cultures 
was set the minute the Russian alphabet was set. Now, two separate cultures. You have the Greek, the Greeks in Constantinople expanding and imposing Christianity on this new Russian civilization. The Russians, or the Slavic people, have their beliefs, their pagan gods, so on and so forth. These two cultures will come to a clash. All of the, at this point in history, all of the people ruling after Rurik are Greek. All the monks are being trained by Greek individuals. So the people, the Slavic people, are now faced with this culture war. Are they to accept Greek culture? And if they are to accept Greek culture, they have to learn the Greek language. And this was being blocked by them. They were being told um, what to practice, how to practice it, and so on, by monks who were being trained by the Greeks. So this might have tied into this war, this discontent between the Russians and the Greeks. And the, the role of religion comes up, okay, the Oleg, Oleg decides to use his pagan uh, beliefs to sign the treaty or to assent to the treaty, while the Greeks might have used another um, form of practice. So this is important, and this, is, this may be why this conflict took place. We don't know for sure yet. We don't know exactly why that conflict took place, uh, when we return, we will look at what type of law is governing Kiev and Rus at this point in time. Keep it locked. You're in tune to 90.5 WHRW Binghamton. Title of the show is Story Traditions with James. I am your host, James. Mamma mia, that's a spicy meatball. This program may contain language and or material that may be considered offensive. The views expressed are the views of this engineer and not necessarily the views of other WHRW station members or of the management of WHRW Binghamton. Therefore, we advise you to consider whether you or your children should listen. Mamma mia, that's a spicy meatball. WHRW Jazz Department. If you have to ask, you'll, you'll never, never know. know. To listen to jazz programming, check out the WHRW Programming Guide at whrwfm.org. This promo brought to you by the Count Basie Orchestra with special guest Frank Weiss and the WHRW Jazz Department. Dad, remember beans and hot dogs for breakfast? Huh? Well, whenever Mom would go out of town, you'd make the same thing over and over for breakfast. Beans and hot dogs. What? <laughs> I don't remember that. Anyway, what kind of dad makes beans and hot dogs for breakfast? You did. And I loved it. You never know which moments will be the ones they remember forever. So take time to be a dad today. 
Learn more at 1-877-4DAD-411 or visit fatherhood.gov. Story Traditions with James, Spring 2010 edition. Story Traditions with James, Spring 2010 edition. Story Traditions with James, Spring 2010 edition. Join me as we explore the Russian chronicles, myths, fairy tales, legends, works done by Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Chekhov, among others. Don't go anywhere. James is on the air. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Story Traditions with James. We are now 20 minutes to the closing of the show. And before the break, we were looking at early Kiev. The inhabitants, the role of religion in early Kiev. And we concluded with what seemed to be a tension between Constantinople and Kiev and Rus. This tension might have been due to religion. And even to this day, the Russians have this dual faith. This mixture of Christianity and and paganism. Um, it still exists today. Next week, we will look at who, Christian, Christianized, who Christianized Russia. So we will look at the three main rulers of medieval Russia during its golden golden years. Vladimir I, Yaroslav the Wise, and Vladimir Monomach. But to conclude today's show, I want to look at what type of laws were set in place in Kiev and Rus. And some of these laws will be humorous to you, because they are humorous. These are the early laws uh, written, they're called the Pravda Rushkaya. Pravda Rushkaya. And it's a short redaction of all of their laws. This is just uh, maybe one-tenth of the entire catalog. But here are some some of the laws that existed during um, the 11th century, at least. Number one. 
If a man kills a man, then a brother may avenge a brother, or a son may avenge his father, or a father his son, or a brother's son or sister's son may avenge the death of their uncle. If there be no one to avenge the man, then the offender is to pay forty grivnias for the corpse, literally for the head. If the dead man be a Kievan, Kievan Rus man, junior member of the prince's retinue, merchant, bailiff, member of the prince's personal guard, or if the dead man be a freedman under the prince's protection, or if he be a Novgorodian Slav, then the killer is to pay 40 grivnas for his murder. That's one of the laws. Second law. If someone be beaten so that he bears bruises and is bloody, then he needs seek no eyewitness to confirm his complaint. If he bears no sign of the fight, then let any eyewitness come forward. If the complaint is unable to produce a witness, then that is the end of the matter. If the victim is unable to avenge himself, then he is to take for the offense three grivnas and also payment for the physician. A third law. If someone strikes someone with a cudgel or a rod or palm of the hand or cup or horn or the back of the hand, then he is to pay 12 grivnas. If they do not catch him to return the blow, then he is to pay and that is the end of the matter. Another law. If someone strikes a man with a sword but does not unsheath it or if someone strikes a man with the hilt, then he is to pay the victim 12 grivnas of, for the offense. These are some interesting laws. What do you think, DJ Juliet? Yeah, there seems to be kind of a theme going on, just that they allow you to get your revenge or you get money. <laughs> right. right. One or the other. And, and the, the life. There, I haven't read all of the laws, but if you read read through some of these laws you'll find that in some instances a hand is worth more than a life or a slave here's one this is law number 17 if a slave strikes a free man and then flees to his lord's house and his lord does not give him up for punishment then the lord takes his slave and pays for him 12 grivnas and if after that somewhere they find him the slave then the man whom the slave struck may beat him. Well, okay, this is a slave, so the, the the life of a slave may not be worth as much, and they're subjected to punishment from either the Lord or the person, you know, they victimized. Uh, let's see. And if someone abducts another's male or female slave, then he is to pay 12 grievances for the offense to him, who owned the stolen slave. Okay, so again, the, the life of a slave is typical of any slave. They're just expendable items. Property. Yeah. Ah, here is one. And if someone steals either a horse or oxen or steals from the storeroom, and if one man committed the theft alone, then he is to pay him, the owner of the property, one grivna 
and 30 Rezanas. Or if there were 18 thieves, then they are to pay the owner 3 Grivnas and 30 Rezanas each. So it almost, seemed, it almost seems like animals are even worth more than slaves. But what's even more striking is how they calculate how much <laughs> you know, the owner of these things get. They're very funny. Do you have any takes on these laws? I mean, I guess I wonder about the value, but <laughs> yeah, I don't know what to say. And they're right down to earth, don't you think? Like, if you do this, then this will happen. If you do this, there's no need for interpretation, in other yeah, words. Yeah, I, I like that the kind of quaintness of it is real straightforward. Yeah, there's no need for a judge or anyone to interpret, well, he didn't quite do this, you know. <laughs> the law says this, if he did this, if he did that, if he hit you with a cudgel, how detailed can that be? They, they didn't say whether the, the individual strikes someone or not. They say if they hit you. If someone hits you with a cudgel, an open hand, or a closed hand, I, I thought that was pretty interesting. But they left out a closed fist. Here, here's this one. If someone strikes someone with a cudgel or a rod or a palm of the hand or cup or horn or the back of the hand, then he is to pay 12 grivnas. If they do not catch him to return the blow, then he is to pay, and that is the end of the matter. So they leave out... A closed fist. If the individual hits you, the closed. No, fist. I've I've heard of that. Like in Native American culture too, they don't have fighting involving closed fists, and it was oh. new to them when they first saw, you know, Americans fighting that way. I've heard some cultures don't have that closed fist fighting. Oh, so there. This is a lot of different types of fighting. <laughs> right. So this, th- these are the types of law that governed um, Kiev and Rus. What's even more striking is morality or the Bible. It's a it's it's a, a good example of the separation of church and state. W- would you say so or Yeah. That it is well separated. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. Like I mean th- there's no real emphasis on life or you know, anything or there, there aren't. It's almost like they just expect people to do this stuff to each other, and you know, in their common everyday life, and there's no morality, or you should feel bad or guilty. Right. This, this stuff's gonna happen. Mm-hmm. And it was quite, you know, I was. Some of these laws are hilarious. If you read, like, you wouldn't believe that they actually took time to write such a law for the land, but that was the case. And this is just a small, a very uh, short excerpt of the entire uh, book of laws. Do you know what that word pravda means? Pravda? Short or small? No? I, I, uh, I don't know. I'm just asking you. No, pravda ruskaya translate into the short redaction. Okay. So it may be short. I, I don't speak Russian. But... um. Yeah, it may mean short. I'm not sure. If anyone does, you know, speak Russian, feel free to call us seven 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 two one three seven in the six zero seven area code. You're always welcome to to join in the conversation. But that was the type of law that that existed. Um, you had that law, but then you had the 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 Greeks and Christians forcing a new type of law in. Okay, and on clo- in closing this show, I want to read for you. Exactly how it was done. There was 
a well-read and well-spoken priest during early or pre pre-imperial Russia. His name was Hilarion. And here is his sermon. It's titled, The Sermon on the Law of Moses Given to Him by God and on the Grace and Truth Brought to Earth by Jesus Christ. This is his sermon, and we will conclude with this sermon as um, an example of the type of laws that were imposed. Here we have an example of non-secular and secular laws. Blessed be the God of Israel, the God of Christianity, who visited his people and brought them salvation. He did not disdain his creation, which was for ages possessed by pagan darkness and by worship of the devil. But he enlightened the children of Abraham by giving, him, by giving them his law tablets. And later he saved all nations, sending them his son, his gospel, and his baptism, and by giving them resurrection to eternal life. Law was the precursor and the servant of grace and truth. Grace and truth were the servants of the future life and immortal life. Law led its people of the Old Testament toward the blessing of baptism, and baptism led its sons to the life eternal. Moses and the prophets announced the coming of Christ, but Christ and the apostles announced resurrection and the future age. And what could the law achieve, and what could grace achieve? First was the law and then grace. Hagar and Sarah are the pictures of law and grace. Hagar was a housemaid, and Sarah was free. First comes the handmaiden, and then the free woman. And he who reads the Bible must understand this. Abraham, since his youth, had Sarah for his wife, and she was free and not a slave. And so God decided before all ages to send his son into the world that grace might appear through him, but sent him to man only later. But Sarah was restrained from bearing children, since she was unfruitful. But she was not actually unfruitful, but was chosen by divine providence to bear in her old age. The wisdom of God was not revealed to anyone, but concealed from both angels and men. This wisdom was not shown, but was concealed to be revealed at the end of the age. It was Sarah who said unto Abraham, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my maid. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And so the divine grace of the Son announced the God, the Father. It is not yet my time for descending to the earth and to save the world. Descend to Mount Sinai and give them the law. And just as Abraham did as Sarah told him and went into Hagar, so God the Father did as he was told by the divine grace and descended to Mount Sinai. And Hagar, the handmaid, bore from Abraham a servant, not a truly free man, and Abraham gave him the name Ishmael. And Moses brought from Mount Sinai the law and not the grace, the shade and not the truth.
When Abraham and Sarah were old, God appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre. As he sat at the door of his tent in the heat heat of the day, And he ran to meet him, and bowing lowly to the earth, he hastened into the tent to Sarah. And so when the end of the age was nearing, God appeared to the humankind, descended to the earth, and blessed the womb of the virgin. And he was received by the immaculate virgin into the tent of the flesh. And the virgin said to the angel, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to to your world. Once the Lord gave Sarah to bear a child, and she begat Isaac, the free son of a free mother. And when once more our Lord visited the humankind, he appeared unknown and hidden from men, and then was born grace and truth, but not the law. And now it was the son and not the servant. And the child grew up and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned, and when Christ was upon the earth, grace did not reveal itself, and Christ was hiding himself until he was thirty. And when he had grown and was weaned, and there in the river Jordan, grace was revealed by a man. And our Lord invited many and made a great feast and offered up the fatted calf of the age. His beloved Son, Jesus Christ and God, then called to his feast many of heaven and earth, and the angels and men into one church. This blessed faith spreads now over the entire earth, and finally it reached the Russian nation, and whereas the lake of the law dried up, the fount of the gospel became rich in water and overflowed upon our land and reached us, and now together with all Christians we glorify the Holy Trinity while Judea remains silent. Okay, so this is an attempt to implement biblical law. Do you agree? Yeah. Yeah, this is an attempt to implement um, biblical law, and it's coming in from Constantinople again. But the Russians are now being exposed by way of sermons, and the sermons are are the chronicles. And this was by a well-written priest of the time delivering this sermon. And you can see the parallels. He was comparing the former law, or the law that was not totally free, to the Russian laws that I was reading to you. These laws are not the free law. They're not the best laws, or, or, or what have you. But the law of the Bible that's coming to the people, that's now coming to the Russians, are the free law, or for the free. These are totally free, and ought to be accepted. Okay? So when the, I will conclude the show now, but keep that in mind. This new law, Christianity coming in, and the virtues um, that are being imposed on the Russians, as opposed to the laws I've read to you, um, that are very common and everyday and very specific for a specific case, they're now at a juncture. Okay, they're now being balanced. The scale is being balanced. And next week we will discuss who tips that scale. How is it that Russia becomes a Christian nation? Who is responsible for that? Who who through baptism tips the scale and brings Russia into Christianity? 
So I thank you for tuning in this week, ladies and gentlemen. I have to announce that my show has moved. <laughs> Programming will begin shortly, but I know that my show is now Saturday at 1 p.m. So please, please, please be sure to tune in next Saturday, 1 p.m. here on 90.5 WHRW Binghamton, Story Traditions with James. It's going to be a wonderful semester. This is just the beginning, ladies and gentlemen. Enjoy the Super Bowl. I will be back on the air Saturday at 1 p.m. Story Traditions with James, Spring 2010 edition. What is the Story Traditions with James, Spring 2010 edition. 